Hi, this is Tamson Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamson and Dan read the paper, paper. <laughs> on uh, Sunday, September 5th. All right, Tamson's 2021. Right, we have two special guests today. Yeah, the, guests, is, the, the guests are... Not throwing us off. One yeah. is uh, Sadie, who's not throwing us off. Uh, and she is here. Welcome as always. Uh, say hello, Sadie. Hello. Okay, and the other is the one who's making us just a little tense. And it's uh, Hazi, or as he's known by his friends, Hazi Bear. Who is uh, so far hanging in uh, as a silent partner, which is the way we'd like him to remain. I call him Jazz or Jazzy. Okay, also. he's he's right by the microphone, so you might he might make his presence felt any moment. So it's Labor Day weekend, two thousand twenty-one. It's been kind of a crazy weekend because it started out with a visit from a hurricane, yeah, Ida. And which caused a lot of havoc in our area. Yeah, it was exciting. It was a lot of tornado. Well, several tornadoes. I shouldn't we, say a we lot. We took Hazi down to the basement. We did take Hazi to the basement. Hazi, I should say, Hazi's three months old, so uh, we got to take him everywhere. He doesn't go anywhere on his own. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so we were in the basement. It was like uh, we, were, we were in Bucks County getting tornado warnings. Right, it's like the we, Wizard of Oz. It was like we were in Kansas, and uh, and then there was the, the torrential rain and flooding which really wreaked havoc with a lot of the area. Uh, thankfully, not our immediate area, but very close Except by. in our kitchen. We did spring about yes, we had 19 nine leaks, in, leaks the kitchen, in the kitchen. Right. But that's yeah. nothing compared to what happens in neighboring towns where they had uh, a lot of water, some dams broke, and it was pretty serious well, business. Uh, bridges uh, got swept away. Roads got swept away. Trees down. I mean, it was, it was crazy. And yeah. uh, towns in the immediate area. And, even, uh, and there was a tornado... Sighted in um, Princeton, right, not too far away, and maybe Washington's Crossing, depending but, on what who you believe. But uh, nearby, it, it seems like there will be buildings not far from us that will be condemned, which will be a problem. Is and businesses, restaurants, and stuff like that. Too. Yeah, so, it's pretty serious. Uh, so this is serious weather for mm. this part of, of the country. Right. Highly unexpected, really. I was going to say, so we've been hunkering down, but not really because uh, you know, post uh, storm. Uh, Sadie and I ventured out yesterday to go to the uh, U.S. Open uh, tennis uh, in uh, Flushing. So we had to uh, drive. We drove. <laughs> tell, tell how we drove. Then. The route that we took. So any normal person, I think, if you're going from Pennsylvania to Queens, in my mind, takes Staten Island. <laughs> but non-normal people right. go directly through Midtown, not once but twice. Let's Both go ways. Midtown going there, Midtown going back. Right. Why not? Who doesn't pass up a chance to go through the Lincoln Tunnel and the Midtown Tunnel? And Times Square. What an opportunity. Driving Times Square on a Saturday night. Let's which, drive down Hell's Kitchen. Which, let's cut across <laughs> Times Square. Which normally would be completely impassable and Mrs. Google would never send us there. Well, But things being the way they are, uh, it kind of timing-wise uh, is the fastest route, maybe by 90 seconds. But uh, it was still a little harrowing, wouldn't you say? Yes, because you kept stopping right in the middle of every cross, whatchamacallit? Crosswalk. Uh, crosswalk. Yeah. Blocking the box. So people were walking in all directions in front, behind, on the side of our car. Yeah, there was enough excitement at Times Square that you felt a, a real presence. But I will say, in the morning in particular, um, it felt like New York City was deserted. I mean, it was talk about light. And we got through the Lincoln Tunnel like nobody's business. I mean, which is well, this never is how we know in, in my life have I done that. that. You two are from Jersey. How's that? Because all you're talking about is the traffic. Yeah. Okay. The drive. Okay. <laughs> Let's hear about the open. All right. Well, tennis, the tennis, we've been there once before. And it's a, it's a very nice event. It's done beautifully. Uh, it's a very nice facility. Uh, there are two stadiums that you go to. There's all kinds of food and concessions. Uh, you know, to be honest, it's a little upscale. Uh, and it's a totally different experience than it, it is going to like a football game or a basketball oh, game. Oh, yeah. Completely it's different. It's like a day at the fair. There's, you know, like a food court outside. There's many different games that you can go to. It's a whole big event. Yes. Hazi's agreeing forcefully as he rides Sadie's uh, knee there. Uh, yeah, and people as tend to be a little bit well-dressed, too. Some people, not me particularly, but uh, others uh, dress up for the event. And it's kind of heads in that direction. It's kind of a slightly genteel sports crowd. I'd still call it a sports crowd, but, you know, you have to mind your manners. You don't cheer like crazy. God knows you don't boo. 
You have to be quiet when the tennis player is served. Uh, and, uh, and yet there are moments when the crowd surges and the uh, players actually respond. So we saw uh, the leading man, uh, the great uh, Novak Djokovic, uh, in, a, uh, in a battle with Ken Nishikori. And it was a pretty even match. It was hotly contested for quite a bit of it. But as uh, Djokovic tends to do, he wore his opponent down and, uh, and won. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we saw two other good, two women's matches, which were very good. One in particular, the 17th seed, a Greek woman, uh, won, beat number 10. And I wonder if she's going to be a factor. Uh, so, uh, I mean, I had a good time. How about you? Yes. And I think we missed the evening round. There was a big win by an American. Right. Who they're saying might be a good... She's the last standing American. She might, you well, know, have she, a good case at the she, final. Right. She beat Barty, and uh, who is the number one in the world. I, I, I didn't hear that she's, she has any prospects of going any farther, but maybe she will. We be we saw the woman who won the tournament two years ago play, and she won. Uh, she's going to be a factor. And as I said, I like this this Greek woman who is the 17th seed. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's extremely athletic and very impressive. Those women. She's got Obama arms for sure. Okay. Very muscular arms. Yeah. Uh, Michelle Obama. Yeah. Michelle Obama. Yeah. 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 I mean, he wouldn't last 10 seconds on the court. Barack would um, be blown away. But... Did you watch any practice? No, we didn't. Rounds? We went right to the right, yeah, right okay. to the matches. We have in the past. In the past, we went to see Serena. But Osaka was out. Serena's not playing. Nadal is not playing. Federer's not playing. I feel like we would have gone if there were other people we wanted to see who we knew were not going to play right. while we were there. But there weren't a lot of people that we weren't already seeing in the match. So I, I will say, I think I may remember this more than you do, but when we went to see uh, Serena a couple years ago, or two or three years ago, uh, people were lining up to watch her practice. And it's set up in such a way that you can, uh, even if you're in a crowd, watch the players practice. But on the walk back through that particular practice facility, notice this young woman who's tall and really slamming the ball. And we stopped and watched her for a few seconds, and that was Naomi Osaka, who, who would win the tournament that year. So uh, we were on the ball. She didn't win the tournament that year, I don't think. No, I think she did. I, I think she, she won did. it last year. She's won it twice. Okay. Uh, so uh, there you go. So listen, the U.S. Open is not for the faint-hearted in terms of uh, finances. It's a slightly upscale deal, but... Um, it's it's a very nice uh, setting. It's a very it's a wonderful day, and it's a lot of tennis. We saw three full matches, which is like mm-hmm. seeing I can't say it's like seeing three baseball games, but it's like seeing two baseball games and three basketball. Well, games. Well, we left the house at eight a.m., maybe eight o five, based on some people's. And we, and we got home at like eight, 8 p.m. And we got at home at eight p.m. So, so it was a, a full, full day. day. Hey. Full day. All right. All right. And then uh, after dinner. After dinner, we had to relax. We had to crash. What better thing to do than than watch? So I suggested we watch this new Cinderella movie. That's right. Without Hazi, by the way. Hazi was already sleeping, so it's not like we were watching for Hazi's benefit. Right? No. no. So uh, what do you think, Sid? I didn't know what to expect because I hadn't read much about it or seen much about it. But it was not what I was expecting. I was I didn't realize it was going to be covering pop songs i thought it was i kind of heard that it wasn't going to be the traditional cinderella thing but i didn't realize they weren't doing the cinderella songs i was expecting rogers and hammerstein mm-hmm. i did not get rogers and hammerstein it wasn't i would i think the covers were interesting um but we didn't get all the way through it because we fell asleep so <laughs> that's, not, that's not a, that tells you so something. who knows how it ends i will say um th- well that's the one thing i don't know if they they ended it the same way but I think it's a happy ending. I don't know. I don't know. Um, but I liked the cast for the most part. I was sad that there are a lot of English um, comedians in it that I recognize from various like English panel shows that they've been on. And yes, Ozzy <laughs> likes Ozzie the English comedians. Yes. Um, well, the um, well, who was in it? Uh, Camila Cabello. Was Camila that Cabello was the Cinderella, right. and there was the stepmother who is Adina Menzel. Adina Menzel, yeah. right. Adele Dazim, Adele. Yeah. Well, that's the John Travolta line. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then um, I'm unfamiliar with the prince, but yeah, the king was Pierce Brosnan. That's right. 
and the queen was a mini driver. Right. Very good. And um, there were a few like up and coming stars that I'm sure some people would recognize if they weren't as old as me. Um, and then the um, English comedians, there was Rob Beckett, James Corden, James A. Caster, and Ramesh. I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Well, you know, James Corden was one of the producers, if not the lead producer yeah. of it. And all those, I'm sure all those English comedians, I know they're friends with him because they've, you know, there's kind of, you know, that circuit of English comedians. So maybe he was just like, I'm going to bring in all my buds yeah. to do this movie with me. Right. And Billy Porter was in it playing the fairy. Yes. Oh, that, yeah. He was uh, quite the presence. Yes. He was, and he was fun. He was interesting. Yeah. yeah he was fun. So what do you think, yeah. then? Well, that's what I thought. I mean, I got less out of the pop music than Sadie did, actually. Oh, okay. Because, um, you know, a couple of songs I sort of recognized, but uh, um, so, it, you know, it, it was fine. It, it, you know, since I fell asleep, it, it totally, yeah. didn't totally hold well, my head. I, I, I wasn't that. in love. There was one original song that we saw, and I was not in love with that song. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I should say, by the way, it was directed by a woman named Kay Cannon. Uh, and I would say I got less out of the pop songs than you, Townsend. So, uh, you know, I did look at the Rotten Tomatoes, and the Rotten Tomatoes, I know you may want to guess or not, but uh, it was only 46%. Yeah. So, so I don't think, and yet Amazon's already touting it, everybody's watching it. So, you know, look, it, it is what it is. It's a little bit of a television vehicle. I don't think they, you know, killed a lot of brain cells putting it together, to tell you the truth. And uh, They probably spent a pretty penny. Uh, in terms of production. The thing guys, is, yeah. who does it, you know, if, if uh, it's not going to really... Catch on with diehard musical lovers. No, no, no. Right? It's totally forgettable. And, uh, yeah. you know, I don't know if it really was attracting the younger crowd it was crafted for. So, uh, who knows? It reminded me a little bit of the Whitney Houston version of Rodgers and Hammerstein, but it was mm-hmm. like basically a cross between that and an episode of Glee. Yeah. yeah. That's what I would say. Yeah. Because it was a lot more colorful, like, and it was intentionally very diverse which I feel like the Whitney Houston version was. Well, I think Glee took itself a little more seriously. Uh, I don't know. Uh, all right. It is what it is. It's kind of light, light entertainment. Let's leave it and at then, that. Uh, oh, I, I was going to talk about the, um, the Fermi problems. Did you have something before? No, no. Go right ahead. Well, here I want to... Before I, I, I don't say, want to talk about the Fermi. I, before I lose... Yeah, here's something I see. Comments. and This reminds me of something Sadie and I used to do. And then I'll let Sadie and uh, her sidekick here uh, go. I'm reading uh, something about this woman who says that she had a her mother was You're reading uh, an essay, an essay written by a woman named Carolyn Chen, who's writing about how she used to have these math problems, like you know, uh, someone takes six hours to paint a fence, someone else takes twelve hours, so they both work together. How much would it be? That, that kind of math problem. And she would seek help from her mother, who, as it happens, was a physicist, and her mother was never particularly engaged in the algebra, notwithstanding these are algebraic problems. But she would always take the big picture. She liked to say, well, look, you think it takes people less time to paint if there's two of them rather than one? What generally would you think the answer would be? Your answer seems to suggest it takes longer if there are two people. Let's step back and try to estimate. And it turns out that her mother's approach, which was the idea of taking large, almost insolvable problems and throwing out numbers and trying to work through and estimating, uh, there's, a, there's a word for those kind of problems, and they're called Fermi problems, named after the Italian physicist Enrico Fermi, who had an uncanny knack for making spot-on approximations with actual data on hand. Uh, one of the most famous, you know, most famous examples of his was how many piano tuners are there in Chicago? If you were to ask that question, you know, you say, well, how many people live in Chicago? What percentage of people have pianos? How often do they have them tuned? That means there's this many tunings. Most piano tuners do three pianos a day, and you just you know keep making approximations, bump, 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 and you end up with a number being that there are roughly 170 tuners across Chicago. Now, that may be the right number or the not the right number, but it's interesting how you draw on intuition and mathematical calculations to do it. And, you know, I like to do that kind of thing. I didn't realize it was called a Fermi problem, and of course, Sadie has seen this in action when we bought gas all the time, right, Sadie? Is that fair? When we were yes. driving to buy gas? And I Gas every single car. time, every single time. Gas for your car. Gas for my car, exactly right. And we would pull in, and we would have to guess. Uh, I felt compelled to guess how much it was going to be, and I would look at the, you know, the needle. I didn't do anything. They didn't have uh, digital uh, information on the dash then, and uh, 
I try to remember how much was in the tank of the car, and I look at the price of gas, and uh, and I say, I don't know, ba, 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 you know, twenty five fifty or something like that. And Sadie would pretend to think along with me, uh, but not. And if I said twenty five fifty, she'd pretend to be calculating, and she'd say twenty six or something <laughs> like that. Maybe the price is right. Twenty five fifty one. Yeah, exactly that kind of thing. And we did this maybe a thousand times. Yeah. Well, you used to ask everyone in the car. I did. I for did. you know what they think. Yeah. Sadie is pretty much the only one who would respond. No, but <laughs> we would often get gas on Sunday nights when we went to get the pizza. Yeah, so that so was it just often Sadie. happen at that time. That's right. And uh, well, I, I think the reason the other ones, you know, Zeke and uh, Granger might have been more reluctant to participate because they would try to do real calculations. Sadie was just cheating. Uh, pretending that she was making real calculations, but said he wasn't the oldest. Well, so this sounds okay. like a classic uh, interview question. A lot of firms use that type of question for interviews where they say, you know, like how many uh, airplanes are there in the world or something like that. Really? And you have to say like, okay, I'm going to estimate based on like this and that. And Is that? I didn't know figure that. It out. Yeah. It's, and the purpose of it is to see the way your mind works and see and just have a general sense of like how you would approach that problem rather than get an exact precise oh, result yeah you want to you want to work with people who rather than throwing up their hands would say i don't know i guess you could try to get an idea by doing x and this and assuming this assuming that assuming that that's the kind of that's a problem solve you want a problem solve that's exactly most right jobs exactly right so i think that's fair i didn't even know that all right so that's positive. All right. So do you th- are, are you uh, taking uh, Ozzy out for a walk at this point or what? Where are we going? Yeah. He seems like he's got a lot of energy. So he maybe does. we'll go take a walk around the house. Yes. Go. To the, go. All right. So it's nice to have you to here, say, Sadie. He, he loves the microphone. Does he really? He's like mesmerized. I guess it's the little red light. He loves the really? podcast. Yeah. He, he, All right. He loves the spotlight. Bye, Sadie. Bye, Haz. Yes. Thank you. If you have any other thoughts, Haz, feel free to come back. Okay, so uh, what are we going to talk about next? Uh, There she goes. History of marathons, Thompson. Yeah, the historically speaking uh, column in the Wall Street Journal this week was about the history of uh, the you know the running race, yeah, marathon, right, and um, uh, you know there she had a couple of. uh, Interesting points. Number one, uh, her podiatrist always knows when the marathon is because oh. there's a sudden uptick right. in, uh, in missing toenails and stress fractures. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, um, I think the, one of the most interesting points she makes is that um, some two to three million years ago, our hominid ancestors began to develop sweat glands that enabled their bodies to stay cool mm-hmm. while chasing after prey. Right. Okay. Um, other mammals can't do that. Oh, really? Right. Um, they would overheat unless they stop and rest. Thus, the slow but sweaty humans won out over fleet but panting animals. Oh, really? That's how we got one of our, that's one of our natural advantages. How do you like that? Sweating, yeah. So that's interesting. Yeah. Um so uh, you're you're kind of a tribute to those early. I am. Uh, <laughs> what does that mean? What was that? You know, I'll tell you something. You or, or maybe you're the pinnacle of the development. You're of suggesting the, that of I the, sweat a lot. Possibly. You know, there was. Uh, it's funny because there was a controversy in the tennis. You you may have run across this the day before we went there, that there was uh, a Greek player, a male player, who was accused of taking extra long bathroom breaks by Andy Murray, who was mm-hmm. playing on the Englishman. Uh, who he felt were really just designed to, to break Andy Murray's momentum, and, and the Greek prevailed in the match, so there were some bad feelings afterwards. Uh-huh. And the woman we saw yesterday, who was number 17 in the world, uh, who's Greek, came to the defense of the, uh, of the Greek male player. She said, you know, I think Murray's being terribly unfair. I know this guy very well, and I can say two things about him. One is, he sweats a lot. He sweats a lot. So when he goes in and takes a bathroom break, he's, all, he's entitled to change his clothes. Uh, and uh, he has to because he sweats a lot. And number two, it takes him a long time to get dressed. 
And exactly how does she I know don't that? know. I don't know, but that's the exact quote. You can look it up. And Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. She didn't say how long it takes me to get undressed, but uh, <laughs> they're never complete. She was doing sort of a Fermi problem. Anyway, back to yeah. marathons. Yes. Marathon at uh, 26.2 miles isn't the oldest long-distance race. Oldest right. no long-distance race. Apparently the Egyptians. Yeah. There was an Egyptian pharaoh in about uh, 700 uh, B.C. Yeah. Uh, um, who uh, liked to organize runs to keep his soldiers fit. Yeah. And one of his races that he organized, there was a monument. There's a monument inscribed uh, recording a two-day, 62-mile yeah. uh, wow. race from Memphis to Fayum and back. The unnamed winner of the first leg completed it, that is 31 miles, in four hours. Oh, okay. About four hours. So, um, but uh, the uh, shorter, you know, traditional marathon is, uh, you know, um, derives from the story of the Greek messenger who right. ran from Marathon to Wait, Athens. That was 22 miles, though, I think. 20, what? Yeah, I thought it was only 22 miles. Am I wrong about that? 26.2. Oh, it was 26? Okay. Yeah. Good. Um, and... Are you you're talking about the distance from Athens to Marathon? Yeah, the actual distance. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, yeah, well, okay. she doesn't cover that. Okay. okay? Uh, anyway, she says, um, well, he he ran to right. give we, the news. He gives the news of the latest battle. Right. Yeah. Um, of the victory over the Persians and drops dead of exhaustion. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. She says it's probably a conflation of a couple different stories or mm-hmm. just a, an exaggerated uh, myth of some sort. She said definitely the Greeks. Used long distance run- runners called hemorrhodromai, um, moi, uh, to convey messages. But uh, probably the story is a little bit uh, of, uh, you know, uh, a bunch of, uh, like I said, conflation. Uh, but anyway, um, as a competitive sport, the marathon has a pretty short history. The longest race in the ancient Olympic Games was about three miles. Mm hmm. Uh, this didn't stop uh, the French philologist Michel Breal from uh, persuading organizers in 1896 to recreate the famous marathon um, and uh, to add a little extra classical flavor uh, to, to, to the, the Olympics, yeah. Greek, you know, to the new Olympic Games, and um, it, it, you know, it had uh, a uh, great effect. The Greek team trained so hard that it won eight of the first nine places. Oh, wow. Which inspired um, John Graham, the manager of the American team, to go home and organize the first Boston Marathon in 1897. Okay. Um, So, let's see. Was there anything else... uh, no, I mean, I, I do Funny think about it's it. interesting that uh, you say that they took uh, several hours to run the first race in Egypt. I mean, they didn't have the right footwear. I mean, it, it must have been that much tougher to run in bare feet. That's a good point. Yeah, I, I don't know they what they were running. They had footwear in Egypt, but I don't know. They certainly yeah. didn't have, uh, you know. The foam padding. But what about, um, is it the Kenyan runners who train barefoot? Yeah, there, there are some runners who would... Uh, I don't, I don't know if it's the Kenyans in particular, but there um, have been barefoot runners. Then she, uh, Amanda Foreman, the writer, also mentions women were banned from the sport till uh, 1964. Right. Well, there's a whole story about women and not then, being allowed uh, you know, to run in the New York Marathon. get into, and that was, uh, that was in the UK, but then in, it's not till 66 and 67 when, uh, you know, there's the whole Boston Marathon right. story. Right. I, I don't think, I don't happen in front of me, but I don't think you had a, an Olympic marathon for women until like 1980 when Joan Sanders 1984, won. 1984. 1984. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah. So, so there you go. I mean, and the point about the Boston is 66, 67 people sneaked in. Yeah. They didn't really allow the right. women right. until 72 and then uh, it's um, 84 that mm-hmm. it becomes part of the Olympics. Okay. Um, and you had another article about the... Um, Employment. Oh, employment. Well, employment's an interesting question now. Yeah. Because uh, you know, so many, we, we keep hearing every day, don't we, that you know companies are understaffed. Mm-hmm. That they can't find um, good job candidates. Right. And that uh, a lot of businesses are really suffering because of that. Uh, and uh, so there was an article in the Wall Street Journal about um, 
that uh, there's a bunch of uh, factors that may be uh, hindering hiring uh, people. It not you know people uh, employers are not seeing all the best you know all the desirable candidates, and part of it may be due to these new automated systems uh, for um, you know sorting through. Uh, resumes. Mm-hmm. And I was telling you, I thought, you know, when I think of applying for jobs now, especially applying online, mm-hmm. um, which uh, goes back, you know, uh, begins to ramp up during the 1990s, um, that, uh, you know, it's just got to be impossible to compete with all these other, um, you know, resumes mm-hmm. from all over the world. Uh, for one job, and it, and in fact, that's true. You know, the uh, the new sort of fabulous kind of democratic equalizing uh, access to jobs mm-hmm. uh, to applying for jobs results in this huge tsunami mm-hmm. of applications. So then the um, people, the employers, are you know have to figure out how do we sort through all this, and so these companies, um, these you know talent. Uh, sifting companies uh, are born with software that uh, sorts through and develops algorithms um, to sort through mm-hmm. the applicants, applicant tracking systems, mm-hmm. they're called. And of course, those systems are only as good as, you know, the results are only as good as uh, the systems that go into it. Mm-hmm. And apparently, some of them, you know, make mistakes. Or as Sadie was pointing out, you know, sometimes the filters are actually tweaked to give odd results, um, depending on what people are really looking for, no matter what they say. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, an example um, of one situation where people are excluded, when good candidates are excluded, would be uh, that, uh, this, well, I should say that this article is all is largely based on some research done at Harvard, at the Harvard Business School recently. And what they found is that uh, you had examples like hospitals looking for registered nurses. Mm-hmm. Okay, And one of the f- factors, uh, one of the things they were looking for was actually, well, how should I say this? Um, the... Uh, the um, systems were filtering for nurses with computer programming skills. Mm-hmm. Okay, and when no- actually the job didn't require any programming skills, right. it just needed uh, people who can enter patient data into a computer. Yeah, so it was translated. You know, the job description was translated into a shorthand that. Uh, ends up looking for an entirely wrong person. Mm-hmm. So you have all these perfectly uh, yeah. skilled okay. people who were cut out. So there is that. So in some cases, it's you know it's the wrong description, and it filters out people. Um, and, uh, you know, so, you know, obviously, you can uh, improve the technology. That's one route mm-hmm. to get better result, results. Right. Some people are saying, though, but we, what you really need to do is, or what they're beginning to do, is um, to use less automated methods to find the right people. You point out that automated methods aren't less automated methods are not it's any same better. Thing. I mean, it's not a matter of automation or not. It's a matter of what you're using as the filters, uh, and whether someone particularly specifically chose the notion of computer programming, which doesn't make any sense. Whoever made that decision, whether it was put into uh, a bot, uh, put into a, an electronic filter, or whether it would be applied in a manual basis, is just off base. But what you want to do is have the right uh, selection criteria and filters. But my point was, you need something. You got to do something. And 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 even if you are going to be eliminating people, uh, some people who ultimately might turn out to be good candidates, you do have to filter things down so that uh, you're eliminating a lot of people who would not be good candidates on that criterion. That's what makes it a legitimate criterion. And you have to do that 
in order to shrink. But if it's not legitimate, and you yeah. don't want to filter out those. I particular. agree with you. You, you know, know you can it's got to be out. legitimate. It's yeah. got to be legitimate. But uh, you know, it's kind of garbage in, garbage out. And uh, I assume that this notion of um, filtering or this function of putting together algorithms which are supposed to be meaningful for the purpose of selecting employees, I assume that's a competitive industry and that the uh, folks who are looking to hire have uh, some alternatives to, as to who they might choose to do the filtering for them and to line up people for interviews. And you would like to think that the folks who have the appropriate criteria uh, in their filters are the ones that are going to prevail in that employment industry. Right. Like, well, if it's like any other industry, well, that's the way it's going to okay, go. Okay, well, let's talk about some of the other problems. Some uh, some of the other problems were uh, had to do with like um, uh, the idea of they would have candidates who had resume gaps. Look, we could argue okay. about whether any particular filter is good or not. I mean, I don't, I'm sure there are bad ones, and I'm sure there are good ones. But, but... You, the thing is, there are good reasons for a resume gap, bad reasons. Right. Okay. But uh, if everybody's just knocked out, regardless right. of what the reason, I, but all you're doing you don't get to find out. I understand you don't get to find out, but on the other hand, you have to manage the population. And as my point is, and I'm not defending these people because I don't know anything about them in terms of the employment agencies and what they're using and the quality of the criteria that they apply. But having said that, what I think is important to recognize that they have to do something. And if you have a criterion that you put in there, which in fact is uh, a meaningful filter and a legitimate filter in terms of eliminating eight out of, you know, 10 candidates and eight of, for eight of those candidates, it, it actually is on the mark. Those people don't belong because they're not meeting that criteria. Mm-hmm. And for another two, you know, if you got to know them, they'd be good candidates. Well, that doesn't mean that that's not a legitimate filter to apply because you have to play their percentages. Uh, and you have to, you want to invest your time in terms of interviewing the pe- person who's most likely to fit the bill. And that would be people uh, in, who weren't really eliminated on that basis. So it's, it's a tricky thing. I mean, I think it's, uh, it's a question of a, choosing the right uh, uh, criteria and put that in the algorithm. And, and they mentioned a couple of other um, roadblocks. One was uh, being a convicted well, that, that's a whole other issue. and right. I, that, It's a whole other issue. I, but the point is, that, and but uh, one of the people, you know, uh, you know, says, remarks, you know, we're trying to get, we're trying, I'm trying to do right. I'm trying to make a fresh I start. Understand. I, understand. I can't do that if I can't get that a That is a huge issue. And, and okay. yet, and yet that, I know that is a marker. Okay. I know that that does eliminate All a lot Right. Of then there was job. another interesting uh, case of, uh, you know, um, beginning to look at, uh, beginning to um, um, find candidates who are on the autism spectrum. Okay. That I thought was very interesting because uh, in technology, um, many um, people with the, on, the, on the spectrum have excellent skills suited uh, to in detail problem solving, you know, etc. I would think that these employment agencies would be onto that. I, I don't think that's well, a mystery. They're getting well. Uh, this is talking about developing programs to get those people beyond. They don't make uh, the cut in terms of resume experience, etc. Yeah. They may also. Uh, they can't get through the front door because of lack of social skills to pass through those, the interview. I understand the uh, interview, but, but they do better with the bots. So they're, they're probably benefited. Yeah, by this is leaving system. that. This is more like talking about, you know, where are the other, where yeah. are other candidates I, I, I think the problem uh, coming from and how can we get through to the problem them. Being I think the biggest problem is the one you put your finger on before, and that's the notion of having a record. If you have a prison record, I'll tell you right now, if you're looking to hire somebody to watch Hazi, okay, and you have two candidates, or ten, and two or three of them have a prison record, I'm telling you, I'd be very surprised if you hire the person with the prison record. I don't care how they interview. I mean, it's just natural. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's a, that's a problem. It's agreed. But there are also jobs where, you know, um, mm. no, there, there's got to be places for people. There, there is. But if work. it's a competitive situation. Not put, a, but that's not the question. The question is a competitive situation who's more likely to be appealing. And the, frankly, the person who doesn't have the prison record is going to have a leg up. There's no way to avoid that. So uh, anyway, that's a whole other issue. Uh, okay, I mean it, it's a bag. It's a you know, it's a bag of worms. It's it's, no, it's difficulty. The point is, uh, you know, there are people out there 
And uh, the trick is... Well, it is a favorable job market. So I do think that the tables have turned a little bit. And I do think for that reason, you're going to see employers reach out in a way they haven't before in terms of finding people that might not have made the cut before and giving them opportunities. So that's good. Right. Right. Moving right along. Moving right along. Um, Oh, oh, it's you this time. Yeah. Plug in hybrids. I'll just say a moment. There's an article that you stunned me. It said, should be Daniel, our car guy in the Wall Street Journal, for an article wrote, why plug-in hybrids are an illusion of echo consciousness. And I said, how can that be? Zeke's got a plug-in hybrid. He's Mr. California. And, um, you know, he bought it with very, you know, the uh, environment in mind. Is he kidding himself? Well, it turns out that there's a kind of car that I wasn't familiar with. Uh, all plug-in hybrids have a limited, or have a range. They can go a certain amount of miles. And beyond that amount of miles that are on electric power, uh, then it switches to a uh, regular uh, car engine uh, using gasoline, uh, combustion engine. Um, Zeke's is uh, 29. You can go 29 miles on an electric charge. Um, but there's a whole bunch of cars which uh, only have eight, six, eight. They're high luxury cars. They're like uh, Bentleys and cars like that that were designed particularly to take advantage of the tax benefits and the rebates that you get if you have a plug-in hybrid when they aren't really functioning very much as an electric car. As a matter of fact, they're getting so little range that people don't even use them as electric because they say, so why plug it in? It's only going to give me eight miles. And they end up just being uh, cars that are being run on combustion engines uh, and there's no electrical aspect right, so of them So Zeke wasn't bamboozled. So Zeke wasn't bamboozled. I okay. will say Zeke's on the border. The border really is 30. In other words, there are two clear categories. There's the very, very limited mileage, and there is the high mileage. And you wouldn't think so, but 30 is the high mileage. Zeke mm-hmm. gets 29. And as it happens, the way Zeke drives, he never buys gasoline. So it works for him. But I didn't really know there was this kind of loophole that was being exploited by luxury cars, putting out cars that get like eight uh, and getting all the benefits from the government that go with that. So that's what he's exposing. So we're on to that. So it isn't often that we get to have a porn segment, yes. but we have that today, um, uh, and from an article entitled "Paralympians Know Inspiration Porn When They See It." Yeah, that's and striking. that was an interesting article. You pointed it out to me, right? And uh, it's really about um, you know uh, understanding people's uh, disabilities, and don't you think? You're looking at me blankly. Well, no, I don't think it's about understanding people's disabilities. It's about understanding the way people with disabilities think about those disabilities. That's little... the that's the way to say it. Yes. yes. Okay. And I, you know, I know that they're getting pretty serious ratings, better than they anticipated for the Paralympics. Uh, and so, who's watching the Paralympics and what's the appeal? And they identify in the article that a lot of people, uh, I was going to say, get off on to go on the uh, porn thing. On the idea, you know, it's, it's very inspiring. You see this person who's blind running. I'm not blind. I'm not running. And I say to myself, I'm lucky. By comparison, I should, you know, I feel energized. I feel like my lot is not so bad. I feel like maybe I should apply myself more diligently. I'm looking at the example of this blind fellow over here. And they say, you know something? That is inspiration porn. Yes. Well, it, it's about sending a, a misguided message that anything is possible for people with a will to succeed. Right. It's not focusing on these people's exactly. achievements. That's well put, yeah. Okay. Right. Um, uh, it's uh, just um, focusing on something that happened to them or some, you know, accident of birth or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and they're really, um, you know, uh, uh, one woman says, if you're going to be inspired by me, be inspired by the fact that I have four degrees that I'm 39 in the best shape of my life, she plays wheelchair uh, basketball, and that I'm advocating for women in sports. But I don't want to be inspirational because, oh, look, she overcame getting run over by a road grader. Right, and that, that's the key. I mean, we're not arbiters about how people should feel about other people. But what's interesting in this article was that it's based on interviews with Paralympic competitors, and that's what they're saying. They're saying the kind of thing you just described. They're saying, look, you know... Some people come up to me, they say, they admire you so much. And I'm thinking, I'm saying, look, why, literally we'll say them why you admire me. If they say, well, you run so fast, that's one thing. If they say, you're running and you're blind, I'm, that's a terrible turnoff for me. Yeah. 
Well, and and, and also the idea that uh, it's sending a message to people. Well, however bad my life is, it could be worse. I could be that person. And, and it's really sort and of... you're saying that's inspiration porn. And yet, look, I'm not, you know, the porn thing, it's a funny word to use. But uh, that's a, I think that's the reason a lot of people watch. That, that's, that, that's the reaction a lot of people have, isn't it? So uh, you can see the, uh, the issue. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Good. All right. So uh, there's an article I ran into about uh, umpire prayer groups, which seems an odd thing to dwell on, so I won't dwell on it. But the fact of the matter is, it turns out there's a group of about a dozen umpires who once a week get together in a prayer group by virtue of a conference call and pray together and talk about the spiritual uh, challenges that they face. And uh, what they say in in the article is that a, a lot of umpires feel they're under enormous amount of pressure that there are 20,000, you know, 30,000, 50,000, a million eyeballs on them by virtue of the television, and to make sure they get every call right, and they are more conscious than anybody else that they don't get every call right. And they feel often isolated, uh, pressured, vulnerable, and they benefit from being in a shared group and spiritual guidance. They benefit from being able to go out on the field and say, look, I did my best, the rest is in God's hands. And there are quite, there's a substantial religious contingent, which is responsive to uh, what they feel or the vulnerabilities that are uh, that they're exposed to when they're out there umpiring. And frankly, it was just interesting to me just because I never really think about the umpire side of things. I'm just constantly noticing how they're getting things wrong. <laughs> right. And they're saying, yeah, we get things wrong. But uh, haven't you learned from watching ball games that all umpires get things wrong at a, at a not insignificant rate? And we're out there uh, hanging ourselves out to dry every day. It's a terribly stressful, rough situation to find ourselves in. And that's why we seek spiritual support. So, I don't know, it made me think differently about umpires. All right. Good to know. Well, uh, yeah. I feel more sympathetic. Are you saying they can't be wrong because they have, because God's behind them? Or? No, I'm just saying that uh, I, uh, they're obviously destined. Uh, and it's inevitable that they're going to be wrong at some low but you know, not insignificant percentage, and there's just no avoiding that. And uh, they feel the pain in that. They're aware of that, and it bothers them. Although, frankly, if they were not wrong, it would not be nearly as much fun. I don't know about that, but... uh, Uh, You know, know, a few years from now, they'll have some... uh, Machine. ...bot to do it. They do that, and people will be very sad. One of the the fun things in the tennis is, whenever there's a close call, they'll put a a screen up, uh, Mm -hmm. a cartoon-like representation of where the ball landed compared to the line. And every it, it never fails to get an ooh and an ah from the live audience because yeah. that instantly has it within an inch or a quarter of an inch or something like that. And frankly, the line calls were never wrong yesterday. Oh, and there were some... Good. And if the ball's coming 120 miles an hour. So those guys probably don't need the religious support. But in baseball, I'll tell you the truth, they definitely do. Okay. Okay, Botticelli. I know you're talking faster and faster, so that means we're running out of time. No, it means I'm saving time for Botticelli. It's time for the museum update. I'm saving time. I can't hear enough about Botticelli. Museum update. Botticelli, the businessman. Ding, 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 ding. Okay. Uh, New exhibition um, in Paris. Mm -hmm. Okay. Botticelli and Botticelli, artist and designer at the Musée. Jacques Mart André, mm, uh, I think mm. opening September tenth. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's just kind of funny. Well, I mean, who doesn't love Botticelli? Well, no. as it turns out, a lot of people didn't love Botticelli. He, um, the minute he died, he was like totally forgotten. Really, um, and uh, it took a while. But anyway, what's fun about this exhibition, aside from the beautiful elegance of his paintings, uh, Birth of Venus, for instance. Mm. Uh, uh, is uh, the business side of it. Mm-hmm. The business side of right. it. Okay, so this seems to be new to, uh, you know, the average bear, I guess. But remember that back in the day when Botticelli was painting paintings, he had a workshop. Mm-hmm. He had a whole bunch of worker bees mm-hmm. producing these paintings. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, to be successful, you had to be a good businessman. Uh, a few years later, we have Raphael, who was uh, not only a fabulous painter, but a fabulous 
businessman, mm-hmm. ran an incredible workshop, developed some incredible talents. And now we're just looking at uh, Botticelli, um, who was somewhat earlier. And uh, this show shows not only um, the different works, but uh, you know, he, his workshop not only did paintings, but tapestries, uh, decorated furniture, mm-hmm. all kinds of stuff was going on. And uh, for this exhibition, they point out how various images were reused and recycled, okay? We have, uh, um, I'm showing you from the birth of Venus, uh, a, a Venus central figure, and that Venus um, turns up in other works of art. Exactly same depiction, but, you know, here she's alone. She's not surrounded by nymphs or whatever, and, mm-hmm. uh, you know. So this is not uh, at all unheard of. Mm-hmm. It only seems odd to us because we think of artists as, you know, you know, waiting for inspiration and making some creative statement. Mm -hmm. These guys are cranking out the art, Mm -hmm. okay? And uh, they're doing what they can do to make a living, all right? And uh, if something is successful, like that beautiful Venus, you're going to see her again and again. Mm -hmm. Um, what's, What's one of the things that's fun about it, it's not even his image. He actually painted this for the Medici. Mm-hmm. And you remember the Medici, the wealthy banking family mm-hmm. who was always trying to take over mm-hmm. um, the Republic of Florence and, you know, sometimes succeeded. Um, they used art a lot. They they liked art. They used it to, uh, you know, create their image and promote themselves, etc. And they had an amazing collection of ancient art. And this Venus is actually uh, somewhat based on one of those ancient sculptures. Mm-hmm. And so she, you know, so it's kind of a, you know, a tribute to the ancient arts, the revival of the ancient arts, and also with the, you know, um, contemporary stamp of beauty on it. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, um, the, you know, just little point here, the article uh, calls her the Venus Pudica, okay, which they... Um, uh, translate as Latin for modest Venus because she's using her hands to cover up the dicey bits. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not quite the translation, but we can work on that in another time. Anyway, uh, so uh, this seems like it's an interesting um, exhibition. I don't know if any of us will get to uh, Paris in time to see it, but uh, again, it's it just underscores um, the difference in what the concept of an artist and artistic production was uh, 500 years ago. Okay. Yeah. All right, good. So finally, uh, TCM. TCM, Turner Classic Movies. We've watched uh, a bunch of films on TCM. No commercial interruptions. And they're almost always films that were prior to the 1960s, honestly. They're older movies. Um, And uh, a lot of them are really good. yeah, but there was an article about them modernizing. Uh, they're changing uh, all the sets. They're changing some of the uh, approach to intros. They're changing their logo, their motto. Their motto, their motto is now going to be when then, where then meets now. In other words, they're going to show the relevance of uh, what uh, those old movies were. They're going to relate them to new movies. And they're going to try to, as you observed to me, without even reading the article before, they're trying to broaden their audience. They've got an older audience. They're trying to make it bigger. They're also thinking about how they're going to stream because this is a cable channel. And uh, they're now owned by Warner Brothers. Uh, and there's the opportunity for streaming uh, how to do it. Notwithstanding that, they have an older audience which just doesn't mind turning the dial and finding it and would be happy often spending all day watching TCM, which is not the, the modern way of doing things. Look, they'll see. They'll do what they do. Um, I will say I love TCM, and there's nothing wrong with turning the dial, especially late in the evening and finding a great movie. Um, And uh, I was telling you the other day, apropos of nothing, I just dialed into The Best Years of Our Lives, which is a completely forgotten film that was made in 1946, which only won uh, seven Oscars, including Best Picture and Best Actor. Uh, In that case, Frederick March, which was made by William Wyler. And 1946, immediately after the war, is about G.I.s returning home from 
uh, the war. And I will tell you too, in 1946, it was considered, uh, along with Bomb of the Wind, the, the two best movies ever made. Um, again, completely forgotten. And it is a beautiful, simple film. And simple in that it's not obviously arty, but um, there are moments in that film that are just, in a quiet way, are extremely powerful. Best and, years of our lives? The best years of our lives. And and, and, and it's surprising. One of the biggest scenes uh, is when one of the uh, characters, who was a main character, wasn't even an actor, the paraplegic who had uh, suffered, lost his hands in the war, but he's finding his way in the post-war era. And he and a friend who's working as a soda jerk because he's a, the only job he could get, Get into a conversation with a businessman who just looks at the fellow, lost his hands, says, gee, I'm really sorry, what a waste. They said, what do you mean, what a waste? And he says, well, we shouldn't have been in that war at all. And, you know, you, you hear about discussions now and how tough the political climate is. And you say, but, you know, World War II, everybody was behind that, the whole country. And no, that, 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 that scene is in the movie for a reason. And they end up having a big fight about it. Well, that's uh, interesting. Yeah. So that was uh, pretty relevant without even the rebranding happening yet. Yeah. Well, I, look, I, 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 and again, I, I, I know which case I'm making here because I do think that the older movies do relate to, to the present. I just don't think you need to point it out in a terribly obvious way. To me, it's quite clear how it relates. Well, I will just say one thing. You know, when your parents got older and they started watching cable TV and they watched TCM a lot. Yeah. And they would watch the old movies. And then later on... Um, they, um, you would talk to them and say, what, what old movies are you watching this week? And they said, eh, we don't watch that channel anymore. Is that right? And the, you know why? Why? Because they felt they had seen all the movies. They might they, have. They were just seeing the same they things might have. over and over they again. Might have. So yeah. I guess when you hit the 90s, yeah. you, you might have seen quite a few, uh, well, in fairness most to of the um, collection. Quite apart from the redo. They are beginning to include uh, movies made in the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. As classics. Mm-hmm. And obviously that's what you got to do. Yeah. All right. So this has been a busy uh, conversation. Yes. With many members. Yes. Thank you, Sadie and Hazi. And Hazi. For uh, joining in. Yeah. And uh, so we better... Uh, I think I think Hazi got a lot out of it. He didn't say much, but uh, he was thinking through. All right. <laughs> Clearly. Yeah. Um, anyway, so uh, this is Tamsin Granger. And Dan Apuhoff. And with Tamsin and Dan, read the paper and we'll be back.